Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hi. I'm Emily Tampkin, and you're listening to World Review from the New Statesman, a twice-weekly international news podcast. Every Thursday, we come together to unpack some of the most significant stories in world affairs. And every Monday, we interview a guest for their unique perspective and expertise. Today, I'm speaking to Peter Pomerantsev. Peter is a senior fellow at Johns Hopkins University and author, most recently, of This Is Not Propaganda. Peter, thank you so much for being with me today. My pleasure. So to start out, one of the big stories this week heading into this new year is Russia and Ukraine. Russia has been building up troops on the Ukrainian border. There's fears that it will restart the the hot war that we saw back in 2014. One never wants to ask, what does Putin want? What is the Kremlin thinking? But I guess I'll put it to you like this, that same question in a slightly different way, which is, why, of all the things that Russia could be doing right now, is it doing this? Like, there's its own domestic scene, there is a pandemic. Why is it important to the Russian authorities to be pursuing this particular strategy with respect to Ukraine? So, firstly, this is not just about Ukraine. This is about Russia, its status, Putin's domestic status, and it's about America. As well. Really, quite a long time ago, Putin became a foreign policy president. The people around him talked about this very openly when he returned to the presidency after his sort of weird hiatus as prime minister. They were very open. We've done everything we can domestically. Russia is now off its knees, it's flourishing. He's the greatest leader since Peter the Great, Ivan the Terrible, whoever you want. We've done it domestically. Now is our foreign policy moment. They were very open about that. Russia is returning to the global stage and to the top table where it belongs. You can see the first invasion of Ukraine as a series of miscalculations, (laughs) sort of following from that announcement, or quite the opposite, as brilliant opportunism. It's still, the evidence is, is still not there for us to really make that decision. We'll only know probably decades from now when this regime falls. There is a foreign policy kind of movement. There's not that many options that he has, actually. He played around in Syria. He plays around with your elections, which is a sport, really, I think. But the serious stuff is around Ukraine. This is where both Russia's status as a great power plays out, whether it can control Ukraine. And it's also the most vulnerable promise that America has almost given, though America has ever promised. It's in the air that somehow America is supporting Ukraine. Certainly Ukraine, again, invokes it in language, even if there's no specific 
pledge. So it's an underbelly. You can discredit America. You can make it look feeble, confused, and full of hot air really very easily. Twin that with China doing stuff in Taiwan, and then you have this historic moment to really change and shape the course of global politics. There's been this debate happening in Washington recently. Is this because of NATO enlargement? Is this, did the United States provoke Russia into doing this? Do you think, it sounds from listening to you, like it's not, at least not only about NATO enlargement and the threat of continued NATO enlargement, but what do you make of that argument? That the US and its Western partners pushed Russia into this course of action? So if you look at, if you look at, I don't know, the autobiographies and memoirs of mass murderers, they always feel they're attacked. If you look at Goebbels' rationale for expansionism, it's always we were under attack. A really spiky and unrealistic victim, I suppose neurosis is not the, the, the right word, I don't know, I'm not a doctor, but this kind of very kind of hysterical rhetoric of victimhood that you hear from Russia is a real sign of a lot of demons that are happening inside. So I'd be very cautious with that. Overall, I think NATO enlargement did the opposite, created more security in a very volatile bit of the world than we probably ever had. And look, if you don't buy my kind of specious like metaphors about neuroses, which I'm saying with a huge pinch of salt, and if you don't buy care, which I think is closer to the truth about security in Eastern Europe, and you just care about great power politics, you can also look at history. Russia has invaded, controlled, occupied, split this bit of the world for many centuries, way before the existence of NATO. It's the sort of the desire and the sense of the right to control Eastern Europe is, is very much embedded within within Russia's claims to be an empire and claims which is it's never really relinquished. So where does this leave Ukraine? Because so I think that we talk about on this podcast often is this or have spoken about often on this podcast is this idea that, well, Ukraine matters so much more to Russia than it does to the United States. And therefore, there's limited action the United States can take, which means that there's limited support that it's going to offer Ukraine. So we're, we've spoken about how Russia sees this and what Ukraine means to Russia's view of its own history and view of itself. But what does that mean for Ukraine? What does it mean for Ukraine? I think Ukrainians are very the most kind of grounded people in this whole story. They've been fighting for seven years. And also, if you look at Ukraine's cultural history, which is actually different to Russia's, even though a lot of there's a lot of confusion, I think, still in America that they're they're the same in some way. If you look at Ukraine historically, there's a reason that the historian Tim Snyder sort of refers to this bit of the world as the bloodlands. This is a, a bit of the world where in World War One, anybody with a weapon was invading, raping, pillaging, slaughtering one after the other. It's since the Second World War where, you know, the most blood is is spilt. It's, it's the place where Chernobyl happens. Basically, what I'm trying to say, it's a place where like, trauma, mass murder, and war is historically very present. And if you go to Ukraine, and if you spend time there, which which I do, and I do a lot of social research there, focus groups, hundreds of hours over, over the last year, actually, and what you find is this incredible adaptability, resilience, and a kind of this really wonderful attitude to life, which is informed by a kind of a shrug and an eye roll. Putin's still not Stalin. Maybe a few hundred thousand will die. We're used to millions. I'm saying that a very, very bitter and dark humor. But the one thing Ukrainians are incredibly good at is being resilient and surviving through trauma. And they can switch that on. So that's where Ukraine is. But, but I think everybody there understands that, that this is a real war and a real enemy that will stop a few things. How is the attitude that you just described? How is it 
different from 2014? Is there less of a sense of surprise that this is happening than there was in 2014? Is there more of a, will it be harder for Russia to make inroads in Ukraine? There's been a lot of focus on how things have changed for Russia in the past seven years. I think maybe there's been less talk about how things have changed for Ukraine since 2014. So, you know, they, they've they've built up a much more competent army. They now have a generation who fought. They have a generation who've shown themselves ready to die, which still in our kind of, you know, are making sense of what a nation is when ordinary people are prepared to die for it. That's kind of, in many ways, the definition of a nation. So they've proven that they are, in that sense, a nation. The question much more is, is Russia a nation? It's Russia that refuses to reveal or speak openly to its own country about its invasion, that hides the sort of burial places of its soldiers who've died in the war in Ukraine. It's much more a question whether Russians are prepared to make any sacrifices, real sacrifices, for invading uh, a neighbor. I think Ukraine's limitations and its psychological intent are pretty obvious. We've seen them in the last seven years. The question is, is Russia prepared to risk a real war in the face of of what will be some resistance. I just want to note for listeners who are perhaps not as familiar with this, that the argument that you're making flips this very common Russian refrain on its head, right? There are some in Russia, including in power in Russia, who say, oh, Ukraine is not, it's not a real nation. It's a fake nationalism. And I mean, to the extent that any nationalism and any nation is real, what you're saying is that actually there's a, there, the Ukrainians have recently proven that they have this coherent nationhood and that it is yet to be seen if contemporary Russia has the same. Precisely, especially around an invasion, invading somebody, not just in self-defense, but actually going out and being ready to die for some crazy fever dream. What we're also speaking about here, or what you were just speaking about, was what you admit to, what you remember. And this has been in the news in in Russia and for those around the world who who are following the stories from Russia for another reason, which is that toward the end of, of last year, at the very end of 2021, a Russian court ordered the, the Russian Supreme Court ordered the liquidation of Memorial. So Memorial is a human rights group. It is also an archival center that keeps track of the repressions of, among other things, Soviet history. Can you speak a bit about the significance of, of Memorial? The significance is political symbolic on the one hand. This was Memorial's creation was one of the great moments of perestroika, so Gorbachev's reforms. It was a real kind of moment where Russia said, we're going to come to terms with our past. We're not going to be a dictatorship anymore. We can talk about its significance in terms of cultural impact, but in terms of cultural political significance, it's a real it's a real symbol. So that's very important. And the fact they're closing it, it's a real kind of forget about whatever democratic gains were made. Obviously, they've all been sort of murdered those gains the last few years, but it's a very symbolic act. So that's one thing. Secondly, it's always tempting, very gingerly, to dive in and psychoanalyze a nation. It's a dangerous, it's a dangerous journalistic kind of indulgence, but let's try to root it in something. There's a wonderful cultural historian, Alexander Etkind, who has this incredibly powerful book called Warped Morning, which is all about how Russia is a country that's never managed to come to terms with the traumas, the many traumas of its own past. He goes, he talks about how are there are no memorials to the fallen in World War I how there's no memorials to the people who died in the gulag. There's no way of getting over, you know, the really deep psychological wounds of that. And I suppose one could argue that when one doesn't come to terms with the past, one of the sort of expressions of that can become aggression. Again, I think we do have to caveat these kind of analyses with, 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 with a lot of, with, with a deal of irony, but there seems something like that. The extent to which Russia refuses to deal with the past, refuses to deal with its inner problems, then it's compensated for 
and these acts of aggression and this threatening behavior, which is also about the past, is also a misreading of the past, refuses to face up to the historical reality of Ukraine, the historical genocide of, of Ukrainians by the Kremlin. It's all wrapped up with the inability to face up to your own demons, to face up to history, this aggression. I mean, it gets very weird when you come to Ukraine because Kiev is known as the mother of all Russian cities. And, and there's this very strange thing in, in, in Russian propaganda discourse, which flips between calling uh, Ukraine its mother and we can't imagine ourselves as a country without Ukraine, which is one of the myths of, of, kind of Russian imperialism, through to Ukraine's a whore, she's betrayed us, she's gone off for the West. And it, it's these really in-your-face psychological tropes infest Russia's discourse around Ukraine. So maybe we are allowed to, on our side as well, try to probe what's going on in the Russian political unconscious. Wherever you are in the world, if you're interested in global affairs, you can subscribe to the new Statesman on digital, in print, or both, for as little as one pound a week at newstatesman.com slash subscribe. That's just $2 a week in America. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at uh1.com. I, I do want to uh, ask you more about the cultural impact specifically of Memorial, but first, I guess I, what I'd like to get at is, I think it can be hard for some, certainly it's hard for me to ask what is, or to try to wrap my head around what is so threatening about an archival center, right? Like I went to Memorial a decade ago to do, to look in the archives of a Soviet dissident for my undergrad thesis. So it was like, it, this is what you're, this is what you're liquidating. This is it's just records. The, the records are, themselves are not threatening. It's what, if, if people want to use them to make a point, that can that can be a threat, I suppose, if you're threatened by such things. But can you just speak a bit more about what it is about the preservation? It, because it's not, the memorial is not in and of itself 
necessarily the memorial, the kind of memorial that you were speaking of. It's not a statue. It's, it's literally just records from the past. What is so threatening about that? Oh, firstly, let's not think that this doesn't happen in its own way. In, in democracies as well in America, we're seeing this huge oh, fight here. Right? about yes. what can be taught about in schools, about right. you know reconstruction, which is something that happened mm-hmm. decades and decades ago, which some people perceive to be a threat to their Southern identity or something. So this is the idea that history can subvert narratives of national identity and cohesion and question them is something that is particularly sharp in Russia, but we see it everywhere. I think when we're talking about acting as memorial, look, Russia, the Russian elites have always taken propaganda, culture, and its power very seriously. And it's a old Soviet tradition. I mean, why did they go after poets in mm-hmm. the Soviet era? They both lifted them up. Poets are the least important people aside from university lecturers. I can, hard to think of people with, le- with less kind of day-to-day power. Probably university lecturers have far more. But so they've always been obsessed with kind of culture, with controlling culture as being really important. That might be a slight Russian obsession, elevating culture to that kind of primal level. But memorial create culture that way through their archives. They create narrative, they create stories, they create self-perceptions. That's one thing. Oh, there's also the, the sort of the punitive action as a propaganda of the deed. You go and kick somebody who seemed kickable and protected, those small memorial seemed beyond reproach for so many people you're really sending a signal. Like, even Memorial mm-hmm. aren't protected. Even these guys aren't protected. You're sending a signal, you guys are certainly not protected. So in that sense, it's quite pragmatic. Before I ask you to forecast, I just wanted to ask if there was anything else about the cultural impact, as opposed to the cultural political relevance of Memorial that you think is worth noting, which I guess is another way of asking what culturally is lost if this place is liquidated and they're not able to preserve. Look, well, there's always this hope that, 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 that Russia would come to terms with its Soviet past in a generation. It would take a generation. The people who grew up in the Soviet Union, they'd find it hard. It is hard to face up to the past. But the next generation, they'd be able to look at the past and build to the future and they'd be free. What's happening is the opposite. There's actually a generation who were around in the 90s who, if you catch them on a non-propaganda day, will because they did actually were exposed to Stalin's crimes. And even Putin talks about Stalin's. They have at least some sort of way of talking about the past. What's so weird in Russia is the next generation know even less. There's been some heroic attempts by people like Yuri Dud, this very famous blogger, to talk about the Stalinist past. But if anything, the kind of the oblivion and the cancellation of the past is getting stronger rather than weaker. And that's a very strange direction to be headed in. And if you look at the other obvious parallel, Nazi Germany, you know, nobody talked in Germany about the Nazis in the 50s. Only in the 60s it opens up and then you have this reckoning. Russia is doing the opposite of all these processes. So that was going to be my next question for you, which is if, if you just keep erasing, or, or I think erasing is not quite right. It's more of a, a rewriting. There was the official who said, Memorial makes us feel guilty for what happened to the Soviet Union. And instead, we should be proud of our Soviet past. And then the same here with school books, right? You're not saying this never happened. You're changing the reasons that it happened and the impact that it had up to present day policy. If you continue to do that, including with not just within Russia, but there's another country or other countries involved. If, if you just keep digging in and digging down and insisting on the rewrite, not only in domestic, but also in geopolitical relations, what, I guess, w- what happens? Is there a point at which... It, it comes back around. Is there, do we have uh, any historical precedent for this? So I like this a lot. I like you've set up a very, I think, I think you've hit on a real cultural moment 
And again, it's very interesting. Let's t take this apart. If you obliterate the, the past, then you actually lose the future. That's the kind of cost. If you can't come to terms with that happened before, it's very hard to do anything going forward. So there's a, it's a kind of a double relationship and you're stuck in this eternal, I don't know, going round and round, itching your pain without being able to deal with it. And I think that's very, you know, even as the past is being obliterated in Russian discourse and political discourse, the future has disappeared. Putin never talks about the future anymore. And all you're left with is nostalgia, which is this kind of emotional space where you feel right. good and you feel great, but you can't really build anything with nostalgia. What's, I suppose, uh, th there could be an even more subtle shift going on. Let's rewrite history. Let's also rewrite the history of 1989 and 1991. That's Putin's big kind of offer, isn't it? Or demand. We're going to rewrite 1991. We're going to reopen those borders. We're going to reopen the idea that countries can decide their own future. We're going to reopen the idea that actually the fall of the Soviet Union was a moment of liberation rewriting 89 and 91 might be a sort of priority for him. Uh, I suppose he does talk about it like Hitler about the Treaty of Versailles in similar ways. We didn't really lose the war. We were tricked into losing the war. We were cheated, etc., etc., etc. We've heard these narratives before. What else is interesting, Emily, and I don't know if this is a future podcast, we're going through a lot of, I don't know, challenging of origin myths everywhere in the world. And I don't know what that's connected to, whether it's in America, re-looking at the history of, of the founding of America, or this new hit book by the late David Graeber saying everything about the way you've looked at the history of the world is wrong. So I don't know, are we in some weird moment where histories are being rewritten? And that's a very exciting, but a very dangerous moment. And so definitely what Putin is doing is the dangerous side of that. I actually have a piece out. I have a piece this past week about Trump and Orban and how one of the main things, what I consider to be one of the most important things that they have in common is their obsession with rewriting and reworking history. So it's not, it, you're completely correct to say that it's not just Russia. But since it is Russia, when you, my last question, you have Ukraine, which has its own cultural history and its own memory and its own attempt to create a future. Can a country in Russia's, uh, on Russia's border, forge its own future, create its own history with this other more powerful country to whom it is so important for this national project or this imperial project. We have examples. When I try to explain Ukraine to people, I often use the example of Ireland. I think it's very similar. The same intermingling of elites and literatures with England as Ireland had with England, and and then but then a, a very long and a deep-rooted kind of desire for independence, which has turned into a perfectly viable statehood way beyond the English frame of reference. And you could even play around with Northern Ireland as the Donbass or something. You can have lots of fun with that parallel, but I think it's a, it's a decent parallel. So clearly there is a history of colonial neighbours separating off and, 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 and having their own life. But this is a long struggle. And there is, at the end of the day, something very... You know, and people keep on looking for if only there was an elegant treaty we could do that would be a way out. And I'm not against elegant treaties. There is a whole there's a whole industry of political scientists to support who can come up with elegant treaties. And one of them might work. I'm not I'm not against the attempt of like staving off war for another couple of years. I, I don't think there's anything bad in kind of negotiating to a point that the, the, the Ukrainians are happy with and the Russians. I mean, Ukrainians are ready to die. They're not dying to die. You know? <laughs> They're not suicidal. I'm not against that. But at the end of the day, there is a fundamental disagreement here. Russia sees Ukraine as its. It doesn't think Ukraine is a real country. It thinks that Kharkiv, Odessa, Kiev are theirs. Ukrainians don't think that, or a lot of them, enough of them don't think that to make a coherent state. And this is a drama that's going to play out not over a couple of weeks, over winter, over, over many decades. And at the end of the day, I think that history shows that the right side sometimes wins.
And I think that's our best hope. We will leave it on that somewhat optimistic note. Peter Pomerenza, thank you so much for being with me today. This has been the World Review from the New Statesman. You can read all our international coverage on newstatesman.com slash international. If you've enjoyed this episode, please tell a friend or even an enemy and rate us and leave us a nice review. Our producer has been Adrian Bradley. The team will be back on Thursday. And I have been Emily Tampkin. Thank you for listening. And until next time. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Trust in politics is broken. So can we get UK politics working again? That was the last time we were happy. 2012. I'm Beth Rigby, Sky's political editor. Join me every week with Labour's Jess Phillips and Conservative peer Ruth Davidson for some electoral dysfunction. This idea of nuance has completely left politics. Together we'll focus on the policies that could deliver political satisfaction. Follow electoral dysfunction wherever you get your podcasts.